Our text for this morning is Exodus 10, verses 1 to 20. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter 9, verse 14, the word of the Lord to Pharaoh by Moses was this, At this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart, and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. When we considered that verse a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God was talking there about the last four of the plagues that he sent on Pharaoh and Egypt. The plagues of hail, of locusts, the one we're talking about this morning, of darkness, and the final plague of the death of the firstborn. And we saw that that... um, announcement of the Lord to Pharaoh meant that there was going to be an increase in the severity of these plagues. God was now going to direct his plagues to the very heart of Pharaoh, to that heart that had been hardened against him from the very beginning. And God was going then by these last plagues to break that hard heart of Pharaoh. So this plague too, this eighth plague of locusts, is a plague which is very severe. In it, God finished the destruction of all the green and growing things in the land of Egypt and left the land of Egypt entirely destitute. Our theme for this morning is the eighth plague, locusts, and we consider, first of all, the Lord's explanation to Moses in verses 1 and 2. Then the announcement of the plague in verses 3 to 11. And finally, the plague itself and its consequences in verses 12 to 20. We have here in the first two verses of the chapter something that's a little bit unusual. You don't see this in connection with most of the other plagues. And in fact, to find something similar, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 7, before the plagues began. And we see there in chapter 7, the first few verses of that chapter, that the Lord was talking to Moses about what he was going to do in Egypt and why he was going to do it. So you read in verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. He says something very similar here at the beginning of chapter 10. I, will, I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants that I may show these signs of mine before him. But then notice that he goes on to say why. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So there in chapter 7, the Lord is telling Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may bring out my people by great judgments and so that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. The Lord was 
telling Moses, I'm going to bring all these plagues on the land of Egypt so that I may display my power, my glory, so that I may teach the Egyptians that I am the Lord. But now look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The Lord talks again about hardening Pharaoh's heart, and this time also about hardening the hearts of his servants, and about doing this for what reason? In verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs by which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. In other words, what the Lord is saying here is that the purpose of these plagues is not just to teach the Egyptians that he is the Lord, but it is also to teach the people of Israel that he is the Lord. He wants to display his power, therefore, to the Egyptians, and in fact, as we've noticed in other passages, to the nations as well. But he wants also Israel to be, learn to be learning from these plagues. He wants them to know that he is the Lord. He wants to display his power to them in such a no way that he will they will know that he is the eternal one, the unchangeable one, the self-sufficient one, the God faithful to his covenant, that he is in fact the I am that I am, of whom he spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. His people must learn this also. And his people must learn this, God says, so that they may tell their sons and their sons' sons about what he has done and how he has revealed himself to them. This lesson then for Israel has a covenantal purpose, a generational purpose. God has become the God of his people as he promised Abraham. He has carried out his promise to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your children after you for the 400 and some years which have passed since that time. And the Lord is now saying, I want to continue, I will continue my covenant with your children and your children's children. And in order that that covenant may be continued with them, I want you to teach them what I have done in the land of Egypt. I want you to tell your children and your children's children about my great works in the land of Egypt. You must pass the knowledge of the works of the Lord on to the generations that follow. And that, of course, is something that the Lord says not only about his wonders here in the land of Egypt, but about all his mighty works and about all his dealings with his people. If you turn for a moment to Exodus 12, verse 26, you find that the Lord says a very similar thing about the Passover. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Or if you 
look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, you find the Lord saying this also about his commandments. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It is a covenantal responsibility, therefore, of the parents of the church to teach the children of God the mighty works of the Lord, the wonders he has done, the commandments he has given, and all that he has done for his people in the past. The remembrance of the Lord's works must be carried on from generation to generation. Psalm 78 also talks about it, of course. Psalm 78, the first couple of verses, first few verses of that psalm. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. In fact, of course, not only is it a parental responsibility, but it is an ecclesiastical responsibility, partly fulfilled in the worship of God's people as they sing of the mighty works of the Lord done in the past. This is why we have Psalms 105 and 106, those psalms of the history of God's people. Psalms that teach us the mighty works that the Lord has done for his people in the past. We celebrate these mighty works also in our worship in order to carry on the remembrance of these works from generation to generation. So that's the main point that we have to make about those first couple of verses of chapter 10. There are two more things that I want to call to your attention. The first is to uh, note again that the Lord says here in verse 1, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of his servants. We've talked about that before, but what I want to do this morning is just read to you the comment of Calvin on this passage, or part of that comment. The obstinacy of the tyrant, then, in so often provoking God, opened the way to more miracles, as fire is produced by the collision of flint and iron. Therefore, also, the silly imagination is refuted that the heart of Pharaoh was no otherwise hardened than as the miracles were set before his eyes. For Moses does not say that his heart was divinely hardened by the sight of the signs, but that it pleased God in this manner to manifest his power. Hence also we gather that whatever occurred was predestinated by the sure counsel of God. For God willed to redeem his people in a singular and unusual way. That this redemption might be more conspicuous and glorious, he set up Pharaoh against himself like a rock of stone, which by its hardness might afford a cause for new and more remarkable miracles. Pharaoh was therefore hardened by the marvelous providence of God with this object, that the grace of his deliverance might be neither despicable nor obscure. In other words, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to display his power and especially the magnificence 
of his grace. So that's the second thing that we want to say. The third thing has to do with a particular word that we find here in verse 2. In verse 2 you read that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt. That word done is a weak translation of the Hebrew. And again I want to call your attention to a comment on this from the expositor's Bible commentary this time. The word is translated by this commentary as I dealt harshly. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things by which I have dealt harshly with Egypt. That verb they say here, describes an action that brings shame and disgrace on its object. It is used anthropomorphically of Yahweh's treatment of the Egyptians, where he made toys of them. That's another translation of this that is possible, or even made fools out of them. And then the commentary cites several examples, other examples of the use of this word. For example, in Numbers 22, verse 29, Balaam is beating his donkey, and his donkey says to him, why are you beating me? And Balaam says, because you have abused me three times. That's the word that's found here, because you have abused me three times. In Judges chapter 19, verse 25, in the story of the Levite and his concubine, we have another example of it. That's a horrible story, of course, but the word is used there. Judges 19, verse 25. The men of Gibeah would not heed him, so the man took his concubine and brought her out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. And you could... You can see why he says they made toys of or they, uh, they made sport of her all night until morning. A very horrible kind of sport, of course. And again in 1 Samuel 31, verse 4, Saul asks his armor bearer to kill him after he's been wounded because he is afraid that the Egyptian or the Philistines will abuse him or make sport of him. That's the word that we have here in the Lord's explanation of his plagues to Moses. He is going to abuse Egypt. He has been abusing Egypt or dealing harshly with Egypt or making fools out of the Egyptians. He has been displaying his power in such a way that the Egyptians' weakness and the Egyptians' in total inability to resist him is displayed. Let's go on then to verses 3 to 11, where we have the announcement of the plague to Pharaoh. Now, again, I think it's helpful to make a comparison, at least briefly, to the preceding context. In chapter uh, 9, verses 13 and following, we have the seventh plague. 
And the Lord gives, at the beginning of that passage, the Lord gives instructions to Moses about how he's to announce this plague to Pharaoh. Verses 13 and following. So what we have there in that uh, seventh plague is the Lord's instructions to Moses. And there's nothing said about how Moses carried out those instructions. It's just assumed that Moses acted according to the instructions he had received. Well, here we have exactly the opposite. We don't have instructions from the Lord to Moses. Instead, we have what Moses and Aaron did. So that this time it is assumed that the instructions were given and that now Moses and Aaron are acting according to those instructions. That's one thing that we want to note. Now, the another, another thing that we want to note about this announcement is that it begins a little differently than all the preceding announcements. In all the preceding announcements, the beginning of the announcement was, let my people go, that they may serve me. The Lord began then with his commandment to Pharaoh. And he followed up that commandment with his threat, the threat of the plague that he would bring if Pharaoh did not obey. Well, we have that commandment and that threat here also, but it's not what Moses begins with. Instead, Moses begins with a question to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So Moses comes to Pharaoh with that question, that very pointed question from the Lord. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Pharaoh has resisted the Lord's voice through all of seven plagues now. He has seen what the Lord is capable of doing, and every time he has hardened his heart against the Lord's power and against the Lord's commandment, and he has refused to let the people go. And so now the Lord's question to him is, how long? The Lord is growing impatient with Pharaoh, and his impatience is expressed in that question. And that's very striking if you compare it with verse 1, where the Lord says to Moses, I have hardened his heart. And now as Moses and Aaron come into the presence of Pharaoh, whose heart the Lord has hardened, the Lord says to him, through Moses and Aaron, how long will you continue to harden your heart? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The Lord blames Pharaoh for his hardness of heart. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 9. When he says the Lord hardens whom he wills and then anticipates the objection from wicked men. Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? God did find fault. Pharaoh did not resist his will in the sense that Paul is talking about it there in Romans 9. The Lord hardened his heart. And yet the Lord blames Pharaoh. How long will you continue to refuse my commandment? 
But notice, too, people of God, that what the Lord is doing there in that commandment, in that question, is addressing Pharaoh's root sin. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Pharaoh's basic sin is the sin of pride. Pride is a root of all evil. And it was Pharaoh's pride that caused him to refuse to obey the commandment of the Lord. That pride centered on the claim of Pharaoh, the basic claim of Pharaoh, these Hebrews are mine. They belong to me. I have the right to do with them as I please. And Pharaoh continued to insist on that claim, even though the Lord had come to him multiple times and had said to him, they are mine. And my claim takes precedence over your claim. And I tell you, let my people go. That was Pharaoh's pride, that he maintained his claim against the Lord himself. God said, they are my people. Pharaoh said, they are mine, and I am not going to let them go. He exalted himself, therefore, against the people of God, and he exalted himself against God himself. And so the fundamental question for Pharaoh is, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? And that's the question, of course, that every obstinate sinner has to face in the long run. The Lord is patient. The Lord is long-suffering with us in the obstinacy of our sins. But his patience does have an end. And he will deal in judgment with those who will not humble themselves before him. The rest, then, of the announcement which Moses and Aaron made to Pharaoh follows the pattern of the previous announcements. That is, they repeat the commandment of the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. And they bring to Pharaoh also the threat of the next plague. And this next plague, they say, is going to be very severe. Verses 4 and following, if you refuse to let my people go, Tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And notice that he describes the plague in considerable detail. They will cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. That is, there will be so many locusts that the ground will not be seen. That's the first thing. There are going to be huge numbers, unimaginable numbers of locusts in the land. Secondly, they will eat the residue of what is left, what remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. So this plague followed not too long after the plague of hail. We don't know exactly how long. But in that time, of course, there was some stuff, some green stuff that had survived the plague of hail, some that undoubtedly had begun to recover from the plague of hail. 
new crops that had begun to grow, the spelt and the wheat, according to 9, verse 32, trees that had not been completely destroyed by the hail, that bore some green yet, and the Lord says, it's all going to go. The locusts are going to devour everything green that remains in the land of Egypt. And then, finally, just like with the plague of the frogs, the locusts will fill your houses, that is Pharaoh's houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians. So they're not only going to eat everything green, but they're going to be throughout the houses of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh himself. This plague, the Lord concludes his description of it, this plague by saying, this it will be something which your fathers and your father's fathers have not seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. Now again, I think it's instructive to compare this with the uh, plague that precedes it, with the plague of the hail. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 18, Notice what he says about the plague of hail there. Tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. So he says in regard to the plague of hail, you can go back all the way to the beginning of Egypt's history and you will find nothing like this plague of hail which I am going to send. But here, with regard to the locusts, he changes the language a little bit. And he says, trace it back through your generations. Trace the history of your generations back as far as you can go, all the way to their beginning, beyond even the founding of Egypt, before that. And you will not find in that history the description of any plague, such as I am going to bring on the land of Egypt now, at this time. So he makes the language even more emphatic and more comprehensive than he had done before. There's one more thing about the announcement itself, and that is that as soon as Moses had finished this announcement, we read in verse 6 that he turned and went out from Pharaoh. He did not wait, therefore, to hear what Pharaoh would say in response to the threat. He knew what Pharaoh's response would be. And so there was no need for him to stay and listen to that response, whatever it might be. Moses turned and went out. Now two things about that turning. First of all, of course, that turning and going out is expressive of the same impatience of the Lord with Pharaoh that came across in that question, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The Moses is also revealing, therefore, to Pharaoh the Lord's increasing impatience with him as he refuses to let the people go. But the second thing is, Moses does hear something that's very bold, doesn't he? You didn't do this to kings. You didn't leave them until you had been given permission to go. And probably, though I'm not certain about this, probably you were not even allowed to turn your back on them 
as you went. You had to back out of their presence, lest you show irreverence to the king. But Moses has obtained superiority over Pharaoh. That's very clear here. By the hand of his God upon him, and by the power of God manifested through him, Moses is the one who is in the ruling position here. And it is Pharaoh who is weak and must cower before him. But let's look also at how Pharaoh then responded, or rather how Pharaoh's servants responded to this threat. You find it in verse 7. And you begin to see here in verse 7 a division between Pharaoh and his servants. For the first time, really, Pharaoh and his servants are at odds. Pharaoh was ready to just let Moses go and to uh, do, receive whatever Moses, by the hand of his God, is able to bring upon him. Pharaoh's servants are not so ready. How long shall this man be a snare to us? That is, how long will you continue to allow this man to bring ruin and destruction upon us? Let the men go that they may serve me, serve their God. They say to Pharaoh, we're ready. We with, the decision doesn't lie with us, it lies with you. But if you want to make the decision, if you want to let the people go, we'll support you. Just let them go. We want them to go at this point. And we advise you to let them go. And they say to Pharaoh, do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? They too are quite bold in the face of Pharaoh's obstinacy. The thrust of that question is basically, are you blind, Pharaoh? Can you not see what's happening to your own land? Cannot you not see how much ruin and destruction they have already brought on the land and now more is threatened? Are you going to allow this to happen? Do you think somehow that it's not going to happen? After having seven plagues prior, exactly according to the word which was spoken to you, do you think it's not going to happen? And so Pharaoh sends and calls for Moses and Aaron to come back. Now I don't think, people of God, that we should read this as meaning that Pharaoh was ready to acquiesce to what his servants were advising him to do. Rather, Pharaoh was desiring, I think, to walk a very fine line. Not to give permission for the people of Israel to go, at least not full permission, but at the same time to appease his servants and to try in the maneuverings which he was about to do to uh, lay the blame for the refusal to let Israel go on Moses. And that's really the point of his question. So to satisfy his servants, he says to Moses, you may go. Go serve the Lord your God. His servants have said, let them go. Pharaoh says, go. But then he asks the question of Moses, who will go? And you see here how he's starting to manipulate the circumstances 
to lay the blame for this failure to let the people go on Moses. Who's going to go? And Pharaoh knows very well what the answer to that is. There was no obscurity in the commandment prior to this. Pharaoh knows what the demand is. But he wants Moses to express it. And Moses fully expresses exactly what Pharaoh wants him to express. We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds. In other words, not one will be left behind. We will take all our people and we will take all our possessions when we go out to serve the Lord our God. And that is what Pharaoh was hoping for, and that is what Pharaoh wanted to appease his servants. So Pharaoh responds to Moses, The Lord had better be with you when I let your, you and your little ones go. The Lord had better be with you, he says, when I let you and your little ones go. That's a threat, which he makes explicit in the next statement. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Here you see Pharaoh's folly. He has suffered seven plagues. He has been forced seven times by those plagues to change his mind and to say, I'll let the people go. He has seven times changed his mind about letting the people go. And now, in his folly, he says, there's evil ahead of you, Moses and Aaron. As if there is no evil ahead of him. As if he has totally forgotten the threat that Moses and Aaron have just spoken to him. As if he, from this position of weakness, can tell, still tell Moses and Aaron, I have power over you. I can do what I want with your lives. It's been demonstrated, fully demonstrated to Pharaoh that he has no power in whatever except what the Lord allows him to have. And yet he insists on maintaining his pride. And this too lies in his heart, I think. He wants to appease his servants, but he also wants to maintain his pride. I'm not going to let this people go. They are mine. I'm not going to submit to their God. And so Pharaoh grows angry with Moses and Aaron, and he drives them out of his presence. Not so. Go now, you who are men. See, he's still um, negotiating with Moses. And serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. There is guile then in Pharaoh's heart. 
beguile of seeking to appease his servants by appearing to give in, at least in part, to the demand of Moses to get them back on his side again. We don't know whether he was successful or not because the scriptures don't tell us. And the guile of saying, I'll let you go if you leave hostages behind you. Your little ones have to stay here. That will guarantee that you come back again. His former condition, which we read about in chapter 8, verses 25 to 28, was go but stay in the land. You may go three days journey into the wilderness. Here he changes the conditions, tries to establish new terms. Go into the wilderness if you want, but leave your little ones behind you. This people of God is not submission to God, nor is it true repentance. Repentance does not try to negotiate the terms of surrender to God. It does not say to God, yes, but. True repentance says to God, yes. Yes, I have sinned. Yes, I am worthy of your judgments. True repentance is unconditional surrender to God. Pharaoh is not repentant at all here. Finally, then, let's look at the plague and at its consequences in verses 12 to 20. First of all, uh, the Lord brought this plague again by the hand and rod of Moses. Verse 12, the Lord says to him, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt. In verse 13, Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt. But the Lord also here, notice, uses a secondary instrument. He sends a strong east wind, a wind then that's blowing from the direction of the Sinai Peninsula towards the land of Egypt. And that wind blows all that day, And all through the night and in the morning it brings locusts. It may well be implied in that that this wind was the means by which God gathered up locusts from all the lands to the east and concentrated all those locusts on the little land of Egypt there by the Nile River. The wonder of it was then, of course, that it was the Lord's doing through the rod of Moses and the severity of the plague that he brought. Now this plague is, and the severity of this plague is also very uh, uh, described for us in a very detailed way in verses 14 and 15. You read first in verse 14, the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they. That's according to the threat which Moses had spoken to Pharaoh earlier. Nor shall there be such after them. There's not going to be anything worse than this in all the history of Egypt to follow these years. They covered 
the face of the whole earth. And verse 15 also emphasizes this by using the word all frequently. Our English translation has uh, several different words to translate it, but it still comes across. They covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. They ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. It was a complete destruction of all green things that remained, and therefore, I think we may say, a complete destruction of all the crops and all the things in the land of Egypt on which the Egyptians depended until the next harvest. There were probably many Egyptians who starved to death in the months that followed these plagues. Two crops that had not been destroyed by the hail were also destroyed in this plague. In 9 verses 31 and 32, the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud, that was the hail. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. It's implied, I think, in that verse that those two crops were also destroyed by the locusts. And so the Lord prevails yet again against Pharaoh. Pharaoh hastens to call for Moses, verses 16 and following. Notice he confesses his sin again. He had done that in connection with the seventh plague. He said, I and my people have sinned and the Lord is righteous. That's 9 verse 27. Here he not only confesses his sin, but even asks for forgiveness. Notice that. He asks for forgiveness. Please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. That's a new element. Pharaoh is being progressively humbled by the Lord. And yet not truly humbled. Only humbled externally. For when Moses entreats the Lord for him and the plague disappears, God sends a west wind which carries the locusts away into the Red Sea. Pharaoh still refuses to let the people of Israel go. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. No true repentance then still. No humbling of himself really, just a spurious humbling of himself in order to escape the consequences of his sin. But it is becoming increasingly clear, of course, to Moses and to Aaron and also to the people of Israel that the end of Pharaoh's rejection of God's demand must be very near. The land of Egypt is devastated by these last two plagues. The Lord has very clearly prevailed once more against Pharaoh. And the end of Pharaoh's uh, refusal to let them go must be very close. And so the people of Israel and Moses and Aaron as well are pinning their hopes 
on the word of the Lord that he gave to Moses at the very beginning. I will bring my people out by their armies. I will first show my signs and wonders. But when I have finished showing my signs and wonders, I will bring you out. So we have here lessons about how the Lord works. We read in Revelation this morning because these plagues are similar to the plagues that God will bring on the earth in the last days, is bringing on the earth even now. They are signs that the Lord is coming. And as the plagues increase in severity and the Lord's judgments go great, grow greater and greater, we know that our Lord is coming quickly that he will not delay, and that our redemption is drawing near. May God bless the proclamation of his word.